Well, hello, everybody. My uh, name is Santi. I am the college minister for The Well, and I want to welcome you for, you know, whoever you are that's listening to this, whether you're in the city and the state or the country or anywhere else in the world. I just want to say that I'm glad that you are here. And I also hope that what we'll be discussing today will be of benefit to you as a disciple of Jesus. Uh, That's obviously the end goal of all of this, that by the end of what we'll be discussing and learning about Jesus and his heart for us and his people and the world, that it will be a benefit to you, that your affections will be steered for him after this. That's kind of the whole point of this. So having said all that, there's uh, no more appropriate way to start by by praying. So I'm going to pray us into this. Jesus, I thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to come to you, to your throne, learn to learn your ways. I love that every text uh, in the Old Testament that speaks about that, Lord, of just people groups coming to you and learning your ways, your heart, your law, um, is still being fulfilled till this day. I pray, Lord, that you would make a, a people of us who fear you, not in a, you know, fear kind of a dangerous way, but fear in a respectful way, that we would come to you with reverence, but also with access. Lord, that it's so, often it's so hard to understand that dichotomy of just your character, of you being a king, but also being a father, and also being a friend, and I pray that all that will just be a little bit more clear as we talk about Mark 8 in the text that we will be today. So thank you, Lord. I pray that um, all this will take uh, root in our hearts like a seed in fertile soil that it would sprung to bear a lot of fruit. So uh, Lord, we love you. And in your name we pray. Amen. So some of you might have heard of A.W. Tozer uh, before. He's an incredible dude, but he wrote this uh, book called The Knowledge of the Holy. And I want to start today by just giving you a quote. Um, This is what it says. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I'll read it for us uh, one more time. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And the reason for this is that as his disciples, we will become whatever or whoever we follow. Whatever version of Jesus it is that you have is what you will become. So the question that we are after today is the following. Who's Jesus? Who is he? And what is he all about? And today we're going to be looking at the gospel according to Mark and chapter 8. And this is where Jesus, you know, he's walking around with the people that have been walking the closest to him, that is his disciples. And then he's going to ask them this question. Who do you say that I am? In other words, who do you think that I am? After walking with me, what have you concluded about who I am, what my identity is? And we're going to be diving into that today. And the reason why this is significant is because thus far in the book of Mark, uh, chapters 1 through 7, Jesus has yet to make an explicit statement about his identity, about who he is. You know, there's here and there, there's some statements about who he is. You know, uh, well, he kind of says it twice that he alludes towards uh, being the son of God, but or the son of man. But it's never clear. People are still left very confused as to who Jesus is. You know, the, the first 
seven chapters of the book of Mark are filled with, you know, wonders and miracles and the crowds of people are marveling at this person that can submit an unclean spirit and, and have authority over um, them. The scribes also are insulted by the fact that Jesus says that he can forgive sins. Quite in fact, they actually say that he's possessed and accuse him of being possessed by Belzebub, who is a, you know, a demon. So it's a big charge and big misunderstanding. Um, then also we have King Herod, who's freaking out because he thinks that Jesus, you know, is the resurrected John the Baptist who will come to avenge him because he just literally killed him. He beheaded him. So he's freaking out that, you know, oh my gosh, Jesus is just John the Baptist back in life and he's going to come um, hunt me. So everybody's confused. Even the disciples are confused. And part of the confusion, I think, stems from all the expectation and all the texts in the Old Testament that point us towards this very special person who will come in time to deliver Israel and reestablish it, or, you know, gather all the tribes, all the scattered tribes of Israel and make it a people again, to put all the enemies into subjection from all of its oppressors uh, liberated. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk you through three essential texts that hint us as to why people might be confused about the identity of Jesus. Uh, the first one is 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 10 through 12. Don't feel like you have to, you know, go and look these up. Uh, these are literally just references. Again, this is being recorded, which means you can access it in your own time later. You know, it's a lot slower and just, you know, dive into these, uh, each of these texts. But here, what we have in Second uh, Samuel chapter 7, 10 through 12, is the prophet Nathan speaking to David on behalf of God. And this is what it says. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you're lied down with your fathers, aka, or also known as uh, death, I will raise up for you an offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. So here, there we go. This is what commonly we refer to as the Messiah. It's this person that will come from the line of David. And there's expectation that that still has not happened. Right, because obviously they're still on a Roman oppression at this time, so obviously this person has not come. But the Messiah simply means the anointed one. It's a king kind of figure. And Messiah is a Hebrew term. But whenever they translate the Hebrew to Greek, which is the language that, you know, the common language that they're speaking in the time of Jesus, the term is actually Christ. So when we talk about Christ, what we're really saying is that Jesus is the Messiah. It's not a last name. It's a title. He's the anointed one, the Messiah, the one that has been promised from the line of David, which I think even if I were to stop right now, I feel like that would be enough for us to, you know, think about the fact that Jesus is way too long in promise. So the second text that I want to read to you is Daniel 7, 13 through 14. And this is what it says. This is Daniel describing a vision that he's having. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. 
And he came to the ancients of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Again, there's an expectation here about someone who will come referred to as the Son of Man, who will be given a kingdom, and all these people, different people groups, shall come and serve him. And the last one, this one's a little bit more relevant as to like what we'll be reading today, but it's in Malachi 4, uh, chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. And this is what it says. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. This day is the day that the Son of Man will be revealed. So Elijah will precede the coming of the Son of Man, of the Messiah. Right? So here you have it. There will come the day when Elijah appears again, and this will be a signal to the coming of this person who will bring forth an everlasting kingdom and will unify and restore the people of Israel, and all of their enemies will fall in submission to this person. And then you're a first century, you know, Jew, and then you see Jesus walking around, you know, and he's like the perfect, this is the kind of military leader that you want to have because he like raises people from the dead, you know, it's like the battlefield and people are dying. He's just like picking up people from the dead and resurrecting them. And he can also multiply food and water and, you know, all these different things. And he can actually calm the storms and the seas and the winds. They all hear them. So all that to say, you know, it's pretty, it's not a far-fetched expectation for you to see him and say, well, this, this guy is special. It's a no-brainer. You want to be on his side. And this is what the disciples are going after. They want to be on the side of the Messiah after Jesus has done all these miracles. So then with all this confusion about what's going on, because Jesus has not disclosed his identity to anyone, we get to the text for today, which is Mark 8, 27 through 34. And I just want to break it down and, and go into it. So first we have uh, verse 27, and this is what it says, 27 through 30. I'll read those couple of verses. And it says, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they, right, the disciples told him, you know, some say that you're John the Baptist. Others say that you're Elijah. And others say that you're one of the prophets. You know, so, okay, you know, there's like three identities here. But then in verse 29, he says, and he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And here Peter stands up and he answers him. You are the Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Again, he's disclosing that. So here there are two things that I want to bring up. The questions that Jesus asks and then the answers that are given. The first point of significance, I think, in the questions is that the first question is geared towards people who know Jesus from like a distance. The second one is actually the people who have been walking with him the closest. When Jesus says, who do they say that I am? It's the crowds that are out there. Who do they say that I am? But then whenever he asks his disciples who have been walking with him the closest, who do you say that I am? There's that kind of proximity with them, right? They're friends. The ones that have learned about who Jesus is from the books, right? From the tradition, from what, you know, has happened. But yet they, 
don't have that level of intimacy uh, with him compared to those who have learned him through friendship, through prayer and hardships, right? Through the different experiences that the disciples have had with him. In, in a sense, the information does not change. You know, you can be the most pagan of pagans and still say that Jesus is Lord. That's no different than one of the disciples' confession about who Jesus is, right? In fact, in the first chapters of uh, Mark 1 through 7, there's a story of a demon who actually confesses Jesus to be the son of the Most High. So even demons can confess and know who Jesus is. But the difference here is not in the content, but it's in the affections. The people who walk with Jesus love him versus the people who remain at a distance. They don't risk anything while the people who walk in proximity with him do. So here's also uh, something that I wanted to cover is that the difference between the answers, right? We've covered the questions. You know, the questions are different. One geared towards the people who are walking from a distance and then the people who are walking up close. But the second one is the answers given. Uh, you've noticed uh, already that we read in Malachi that Elijah would follow this really special person, the Messiah, in uh, the Son of Man. So no wonder why the first answer they say, it's like, well, some say that you're John the Baptist. Some say that you're, you know, Elijah. And all those things are true. Like there's an expectation about who this Messiah would be. But then Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, the anointed one, the long-awaited Messiah. And uh, what's crazy about it is that that's exactly what Peter has in mind, whatever we just read a few moments ago. He has in mind this person, again, who will come and whose enemies will be subjected to him. Uh, and his throne will be established forever and it will be a kingdom that will be forever more. This is the guy who Peter thinks Jesus is. And what's interesting about this is that Jesus, yes, he accepts his answer because he doesn't correct him. It's so interesting about what's going to happen further on as we talk about this is that what Jesus understands the Messiah to be is very different from what Peter understands the Messiah to be. So then here we move to verse 31. And it says, And he began, that's Jesus, And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and also be killed. And after three days, rise again. Verse 32. And he said this very plainly. Which is so interesting, right? That after seven chapters of people being so confused, here it is. Jesus is disclosing himself very plainly. Yes, I am the Messiah. And these are the implications of that. But here, Jesus is actually flipping the script for them, which is, you know, one of the coolest parts about this story. This is not what they signed up for. They signed up for the White House. They signed up for power. They signed up for, you know, an everlasting kingdom, serving a king who, you know, rules over the world and has established Israel again, back to its, you know, grandeur, I guess is the word. But remember, that's what the scripture has said so far, that the Son of Man shall establish a kingdom and a throne and given to him and his enemies will be placed in submission. And yet, Jesus here is saying that it's actually the opposite, that he will be rejected by his own people, and that also he will be killed. You know, it's a, can you imagine just, I feel like even Peter's reaction to this, right, where he's like, oh my gosh, this Jesus who we're following, 
has actually misunderstood thousands of years of, you know, reading scripture and, you know, thousands of years of theological reflection and also thousands of years of just tradition. Jesus has gotten it all wrong. And what we notice here next is that he pulls Jesus aside. You know, he pulls him from the disciples, from the group, and then he begins to rebuke him. And here, if you notice the transition from the first question to now, right, we have, you know, when Jesus asked the first question, who did they say that I am? The disciples collectively in this sort of like discussion manner actually answer it. They say, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're this, 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 whatever. But then when he asks the second question, who do you say that I am? It is actually Peter that stands up in front. Like he's almost like moving further, you know, in the line. And then Peter says, well, you're the Messiah. And Jesus actually accepts that. But whenever Jesus starts actually developing the implications of what that means to be the Messiah, uh, then Peter is all the way to the front of the line. He's actually now rebuking, teaching the teacher. The disciple has become the teacher. Peter has forgotten his place. He's actually saying to Jesus, well, uh, let me tell you this, you're wrong. And you know, that's not far-fetched from all of us because we do the same. You know, whenever we experience some sort of hardships or whenever life does not look like what we assume a life of following Jesus would look like, perhaps whenever you experience hardships or very uh, difficult things that perhaps don't happen, uh, or at least that you expect that those things would not happen to disciples of Jesus. Is it not true that we say, no, uh, no, you're wrong. You misunderstand. This is not what winning looks like. This actually looks a lot like losing. And we forget that it's actually Jesus himself who is guiding us and leading us onto the cross. Not just by word, right? Not in this kind of throne sitting and saying, you must suffer just for suffering's sake, but he actually models it by going into or more onto the cross. Jesus does not only demand that by word, but also by example. And the question here for you and I is the following. Do you trust your shepherd? And in order for you, if the answer to that is whether it's yes or no, uh, all of us can learn to trust him more. And that only happens in proximity. That's in proximity is whenever we, we actually learn his heart and his character and what he values and what he loves and also what he hates. Because in order for you to love justice, you must hate injustice. In order for you to love life, you must hate death. Uh, that's just a side note. I got off track over here. But then we move on to the next section. We're, you know, reading on to, it's uh, verse 32. And it says, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebukes Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And here is, I think, my favorite part of all this text, because what it actually reveals to us is that Peter is just as confused as everybody else. He doesn't understand. He doesn't have a clue. Because it's easy to follow Jesus unto life. But would we follow him unto death? You know, like the crowds that saw him and chase after him. It's easy to follow Jesus at a distance, you know, to chase after him for what he gives to us, what we can gain from him. But can we follow him in proximity and actually risk being corrected and being guided by our shepherd into his priorities and his will instead of ours? 
And by the way, everything that was promised, you know, in the Old Testament was and has been fulfilled. Jesus comes from the line of David, the offspring of David. That's why, and we talked about the genealogy last uh, Sunday, but that's why Matthew is trying to connect him so hard to David, to the offspring of David. So Jesus comes from David. Okay, that has been fulfilled. The second one is that, yes, it has been given dominion in a kingdom filled with peoples and nations and languages who all serve him. That's us. It's a kingdom that transcends, you know, borders and cultures and languages. Um, and his kingdom cannot be destroyed. The kingdom is given to Jesus as he defeats all of the enemies, primarily death and sin. He defeats them in the cross and the resurrection, and then he invites us into life. And now, through the ascension, he sits in the right hand of the Father and he rules as a king. And every kingdom has a king, and that for us is Jesus. That's our kingdom. That's who we belong to. And, and like I said prior, this kingdom extends. It's eternal. It's everlasting. It cannot be destroyed because it transcends the borders and continents and languages and people groups. You know, whenever a believer or more like an unbeliever turns to Jesus in South Korea, now him and I have been adopted into the same family. We are brothers. We are sisters. We are one people. So that's also fulfilled. And if the king, and if every king has a people, then those people live under the values and the priorities of that king. And that's actually what we are about to see further on in the test as we dive into the last verse, 34, what it actually looks like to follow this king, Jesus. And this is what it says. Verse 34, In calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is one of my favorite things too about this text. Is that by saying that if you notice, Peter was now in front of the line and Jesus says, get behind me. Basically he's saying, follow me. And now he's giving him a second opportunity to do so. Jesus does not demand perfect knowledge from Peter or from any of us. But what he does demand is a posture. You know, Peter must hand over his agenda, his will, his dreams, his expectations, his pride, his anger, his disappointment, his name and claim it. I mean, you can fill it up with whatever and take on the perfect love of Christ that will lead him unto the very thing that most of us need, but not always want. If you think about how many times we insist of being lords of our own life instead of submitting to Jesus, when we lost, when we insist on our own way, when we choose not to forgive, when we choose to remain angry, when we choose to remain bitter, when we demean and insult other human beings, when we cheat and when we steal, and when we insist that we are right knowing that we are in fact wrong. All these things must die as we follow Jesus. That's what he demands, a posture of denial. In this, I will conclude. But first, you must ask yourself this question. Do you trust your shepherd to lead you there? With that, let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you, and I also want to declare and proclaim that your way is perfect. Lord, that you are superior to us, that a scripture says that your ways are higher than ours. And that so often, like Peter, Lord, we so often misunderstand what it is that you're calling us into. 
and we ascribe to you all sorts of identities that reflect more the Jesus that we want to create instead of who you actually are. I pray, Lord, that at this time that we will be willing to surrender those. Like Peter, that you call us back into line, Lord, to follow you. Not in perfect knowledge, not in knowing or perhaps being able to explain all the circumstances in our lives, all the circumstances that perhaps we are experiencing, but rather you just ask of us a posture to deny ourselves and to follow you, to trust you, to know you in proximity, to love you. And I pray, Lord, that as a people, as the well, but also as your universal church, that we would be a people who know your character and know your heart, not just the things about you, but rather, Lord, who you are, who you really are, not just as a concept, you know, but rather as, Lord, our Lord, our, our Savior, our King, our friend. I pray that we know you intimately. So, Father, as I prayed at the beginning, I pray that all these things, Lord, would be like seeds that are sown into fertile soil, that it would take root and that it would sprung in fruit towards the worship of you. Lord, that when people see us, that they would not see Peter's, that they would not see Santi's, that they would not see ourselves, but that they, they would see you. Lord, so with that said, I want to thank you for just your ways that are higher. I want to thank you for loving us and for knowing and actually not letting us settle into the things that we actually think are better for us, but actually giving us uh, your best, which is yourself. So Lord, we love you and help us follow you anywhere, especially unto the cross. Amen.